When Christopher Yuan was young, his mother taught him a Chinese proverb, uh, a millimeter discrepancy leads to a thousand mile loss. Okay, so a millimeter discrepancy at first leads to a thousand mile loss. And to explain what this means, he provided an illustration from uh, Korean Airlines Flight 007. And there's a map on the screen. It's kind of small, but I think as I explain it, you'll get what it is. And so this is back in 1983. And Korean Airlines Flight 007 was leaving from New York and it was headed to Seoul, South Korea. And so the first leg of the trip was fine. They went to Alaska, they had to refuel. And then what you see there is the uh, um, intended trajectory and then the actual trajectory as it left for there to get to uh, South Korea. Now what happened though is after they had refueled and they started to take off again, something wrong happened with the autopilot and it was a few degrees off. And so you think, okay, a few degrees, maybe that's not such a big deal. But uh, what happened is over uh, time, of course, you, you go like this. Right? There's a divergent path, and so after the first hour, they were off only uh, 12 miles, sorry, 5 miles after the first hour. But after 5 miles, the plane had drifted into Russian airspace. And so in 1983, our relationship between Russia and America was not that great. And so what happened is a Russian uh, fighter plane shot down uh, Korean Airlines Flight 007, assuming it was an American spy plane, which it was not. But all 269 people on that flight died as it crashed into the ground. And those of you who were around in 1983 might remember. It was a big story. I think there was even a picture in the front of Time magazine. And so that's what he means by a millimeter discrepancy leads to a thousand mile loss. You see, a small thing like a few degrees might seem like, oh, that's, you know, that's, normal. that's not too bad, right? But over time, and if it goes unchecked, it can lead to a thousand mile loss, in this case, tragedy in the midst of Russian airspace. Small details are often big details. Details matter. Details matter. Now, this is also true when it comes to the details that are preserved for us in the Nativity story, right? And we've been talking about some of these as we've gone through December, Advent, and Christmas. And think of the fact that the angel appears to shepherds in a field. Well, those details matter. It's intended to teach us something. It's not arbitrary. Well, shepherds, lower working class in the midst of the sheep dung, there an angel appears and proclaims that the Messiah is to be born in to them, not fancy people in a palace somewhere, that teaches us something about the fact that this Messiah is to be for everyone. The fact that the Messiah in Bethlehem, Luke 2 verse 7, is born in a manger also teaches us something. That's a lowly feed trough for animals. It teaches us something about God in, in Christ and his great love coming in, in the midst of our, our brokenness and, and the very humble circumstances. He will be a servant savior, a servant king, a servant Messiah. Expect the unexpected and with him all things are possible. See, all the details are constructed in such a way so that, so that we are being taught something. So details matter. And the same is true with the story of the wise men and their visit. Now, as I've started off with a very serious illustration about that flight 007 going to Seoul, South Korea, you might be saying, okay, details matter, but maybe the details in the nativity story and, and the wise men, maybe they're not quite as consequential. Not so. We are talking about God's wisdom for millions and millions and millions of people and when something seems off a little bit, that divergence increases over time. And so our question for today as we approach this text is, how does, how does the compass of my life stay on track and not wander off a few degrees in what will become a divergent path so that we end up at our destination and not disaster?
a few degrees either way matters. How does our life, the trajectory of our lives, stay on, on the right compass of Christ and not go off a couple degrees so that we end up at our destination and not disaster? So to explore this, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, and I'm reading from the ESV translation. And just as a reminder, who wrote this? So Matthew, Matthew was an apostle of Jesus. That's amazing. He was the tax collector, right? And Jesus called him, follow me, and he follows him. And uh, Matthew was someone who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. He was transformed by Jesus. It's incredible, right? And he was meticulous. He recorded these information, things he said, things he did, preserved for us. What a wonderful gift. And so that is who our author is. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So this sets the frame Sets the scene for our story, okay? And what people would have heard in the first century is that this is a context of terror and fear. Now, a lot of time has passed between then and now, so we need this reminder. And why is it a context of terror and fear? Not only was life hard, but because Herod the Great is on the throne and he was a tyrannical ruler, okay? A bloodthirsty, power-hungry, tyrannical ruler. I'd like to thank my former professor, Brian Irwin, who summarized some of this historical information about King Herod's exploits that would have been well-known, that the people of this story originally would have known, that we need reminding of. Herod drowned his brother-in-law. He executed the husband of his sister, Salome. He lopped off the head of his wife's grandpa. He murdered uh, his wife, Mariamne, the next year. He executed his mother-in-law, Alexandra killed the second husband of his sister Salome, strangled two of his sons by Mariamne, his own sons, executed assorted Pharisees, and executed his eldest son five days before he himself dies. If you think your family's got problems, <laughs> that family's got problems, okay? And so this is a reign of, of bloodshed and terror, and he's, he's always concerned with his own power-hungry motives, right? So that's what we need to keep in mind about Herod. And then it says that wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, right? Okay, so this is a big focus of today. What's the deal? They're most likely some sort of subclass of priests from the east who studied astrology. These are wise men seeking knowledge and wisdom, and they're studying the stars in astrology, right? They're following a star after all. Now, there also might be an element of, of dark wizardry involved in their past and what they have, have done. Now, um, actually, our word magician comes from magi. So the word that's translated into English, or the phrase wise men, comes from the Greek magi. And I think a few translations will foot that, footnote that on the bottom, magi. And so it doesn't say how many there were. It's masculine, it's plural, so we know there's more than one. So wise men, magi, it's where we're magician, magician, magi comes from. So uh, priestly class from the east studying astrology, perhaps some sort of wizardry uh, mixed in there. Now it says from the east. Now where's that? Probably Persia. And probably Persia, I think that's, a, that's a, a guess that a lot of scholars have that seems to make sense based on what we learn about them in the story. And so in the first century, let's see how far they would have come. So if they took the main trade route from then to Jerusalem and then the final leg of the trip to Bethlehem, it would have been 1,288 kilometers. So that's quite a distance, right? And they're traveling probably not just themselves. They're traveling with a caravan, uh, traveling with uh, perhaps guards, uh, perhaps servants. So it's a long time. Uh, basically, it's like driving from here to Orlando, Florida. 
That's roughly the same distance. And so if they went about 25 kilometers per day and took no days off, uh, that'd be over 50 days of travel one way. So it's, it's quite a trip uh, that they have come to. We also need to note in the fact that the visit of the wise men is that this is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 42, verse 6. So uh, a redeemer is to come who will be a light to the nations. So not just to the Jews and to the Jewish people, but a light to the nations. So the fact that these people are coming is a foretaste that uh, his arms will be open to all. Okay, so verse 2, and they come and they say, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now, Herod, remember that tyrannical ruler? He's always looking over his shoulder because he's power-hungry. He's concerned for his own control of his own throne. He's only a half-Jew by blood. He was given the throne. He did not inherit it. And so he hears this question. This is going to be very controversial and upsetting to him. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews, says Herod. What do you mean? I'm the king of the Jews. And so Herod is not going to take to this type of question very lightly. Remember all the things that he's done to preserve his own power and control. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Next verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. No kidding. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests from the temple and the scribes who were the uh, experts in the law of Moses of the people. He uh, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Next verse, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, and Bethlehem is not far from Jerusalem, for so it is written by the prophet. Now here he's going to quote prophet, uh, the prophet Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It's not an exact quote, it's kind of an illusion, I won't go into all of that in detail. Uh, in the Pulse podcast that will come out later, I will give a more substantive uh, Bible study explanation uh, for the episode that goes along with this text. But here it is, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now I had a little tone of voice there, which suggests that he's lying. Do you think he really wants to worship the child? No. Think of the politician you dislike the most. Uh, maybe their deceptions, whoever it happens to be. I'm guessing that that politician, he or her, would look like a boy scout or a girl guide compared to the treachery of King Herod. Okay, moving on. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, a couple of things. Some people think that, oh, this is just an um, astrological phenomenon. This is just a comet going across the sky. I don't think uh, that's evidenced in the text. I think what's happened is this is a miraculous sign here that God is giving. Not only have they seen it on this large, near 1,300-kilometer journey, uh, but also it comes to rest right over the place where the child was. Now, this is also interesting. So uh, when we put our nativity scenes together, and we put one up in our house, and maybe you too as well, and we have one up here on the communion table uh, up until Christmas, but who's there? There's Mary, Joseph, Jesus, there's shepherds, maybe some animals, there's some angels, right? Makes sense. And then there's uh, three wise men as well. But really, when you look at the story, their visit uh, wasn't till later. Think Jesus is probably one, one and a half year, kind of early toddler years. Notice the word. It's a child. 
not a baby, as told previously, right? And as we see the story, there'll be a couple other details that tell us about this, where the child was. So what's happened most likely is they've moved into more permanent residence. Mary has given birth. Uh, they're now probably lodging with uh, family members, and she's in that early period of recovery. Anyway, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They are just so happy. They've come all this way, and the journey was was successful, right? They, they found the newborn king. And going into the house, they saw the child, again, child, not baby, with Mary, his mother, and notice that they've gone into a house, right? There's not a manger anymore. Into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And so the word here is to prostrate themselves, right, before uh, the infant Jesus. Then opening their treasures, they offered them gifts, him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I want to highlight a couple things about these uh, gifts. Gold is gold, right? Uh, but frankincense and myrrh, you don't really pick that up at no frills or the dollar store. So what's the deal with those things? So frankincense and myrrh. Um, here, this is like, uh, think perfume, incense. Uh, sometimes in the ancient world would have been used for medicinal purposes as well. Some people think there's symbolic meanings to the different gifts. I'm not so uh, sure. Uh, but there is always that question, how useful would this have been to, to a family who's just had uh, a baby? And there's always a joke, a cartoon that comes out in various forms around December that kind of plays on this, and I'll show it to you. It says, after the three wise men left, the three wiser women arrived, and their gifts are fresh diapers, casseroles for the week, and lots of formula. You know, and it's a play on, well, maybe the women would have thought of my actual practical things to give. I've also seen a version of this where instead of lots of formula, it's a bottle of wine. So, you know, you've, you've seen that version out there uh, as well. But, okay, in, in actuality, what is the, you know, these are gifts fit for a king. And so this is a part of their homage. They're very valuable, fit for a king, but they actually are very practically useful. As we will discover in the story, because of Herod's treachery, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus will need to flee to Egypt. They're, they're again going to travel because they're, they're afraid for the child's life. And let me tell you, gold, frankincense, and myrrh could have been traded or sold for food, clothing, or shelter. So I see in the provision of these gifts, God is providential. God is providing for them for the next step uh, of their uh, journey. Quick little sidebar, the song, We Three Kings, what's the deal with the phrase kings? Now, we three kings, people think there's three. There's three wise men. We, the text simply doesn't say uh, it's, a, it's a masculine noun, it's plural, there's more than one. That's all we know. Now, why do people say three? Well, the tradition has been that, well, there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Each must have had one. But it's not necessarily the case. There could have been two with more, there could have been six. Uh, one tradition in the East says 12. Uh, we simply don't know. The word kings in the song, where does, where does that come from? Well, there is um, a line in Isaiah 60 and Psalm 72 that talks about kings coming to pay tribute. So I think it's John Hopkins Jr. who wrote We Three Kings, but he's, I think he's probably brought together the ideas of kings paying tribute and spliced them together with, with the wise men. But anyway, sidebar aside, sidebar aside, let's uh, continue to move on. And behold, and sorry, in being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Safe move. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, Joseph rose, and took the child and his mother by night 
So this urgency, nighttime, is a time of darkness and danger, especially in the ancient world. Clearly he knows that this is immediately at hand. Right in the night, departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Where did they go in Egypt? So they've already traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It would have been over 140 kilometers to Egypt yet again. That's just to the border. How far in did they, did they go? We don't know. Um, there is a community, a, a strong community of Jews in a uh, city called Alexandria. So maybe they went there because uh, it would have been familiar to them and people who knew their customs were not totally sure. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now in terms of that prophecy, a few things should be noted. It's from Hosea 11. And in original context, it's like, out of Egypt I have called my son. And he's calling his people, the Hebrews collectively together, his son. I have summoned my son, my people, the Hebrews out of Egypt. But here it's being applied specifically to Jesus, the Son of God. And there's a lot of connections to Egypt. Notice this. Think of the time of Moses. And Moses actually figures in the background very prominently in this story. The king of Egypt had ordered the death of all the male babies. The king Herod had ordered the death of all the male babies, as we will see. Moses survives. Jesus survives. Moses brings the people out of slavery from Egypt. Jesus brings his people out of slavery from sin and the consequence of death and hell. So there's a lot of parallels here, and what we are to see with all these connections to Egypt is that Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the greater lawgiver. He is the source and author of all wisdom. And in fact, the whole gospel of Matthew is constructed to tell us that Jesus is the greater Moses, among other things. So let's just note that. Okay, continuing. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Remember, Jesus is one, one and a half. Herod, just to be careful, all the boys were two and under. Kill them. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. I just think this is a horrifying scene. Now, Bethlehem and region, that's where the kill order was applied to. Uh, it's a small village, uh, much smaller than the city that is there now, but a dozen, two dozen uh, baby boys or infant boys it's just horrifying to think of this. And so to put it in context, uh, we're told about a prophecy in Jeremiah. So in the day of Jeremiah, the mothers were grieving over their sons who were taken off into exile. And here the mothers are grieving over their sons and babies who have been slaughtered by King Herod. And the picture we are given is in the night sky when sound travels. Mothers are crying out there, screaming out with lamentation and grief. And so piercing are their cries that people can hear those cries miles south of, sorry, miles north of Jerusalem in a, in a town called Ramah. And the whole story is splattered with the murderous blood of Herod. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So maybe they were planning to go back to Bethlehem, but no, Archelaus is there. So they go uh, back originally to Nazareth. Now, <clears throat> a couple of things. Archelaus inherited the cruelty of his father. A church historian named Josephus called him, uh, said he had a tyrannical nature. One of the first things that Archelaus did is there was an anti-government rally in Jerusalem. You think anti-government rallies are a new thing. No, they've been around a long time. Anti-government rally in Jerusalem. Archelaus, as one of his first acts, comes in and mows down in cold blood 6,000 Jews. And so, of course, people are fearing him. Verse 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And so we end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. How do we ensure the compass of our lives isn't off just a few degrees so that we arrive at our destination and not disaster? And where I need us to, or want to direct us, is the fact that we constantly make mid-course corrections to the wisdom of Christ. We need to constantly make mid-course corrections to the wisdom of Christ. I'm going to say it like this. It's a Christ compass that we need to establish and develop in our lives. See, the point of the story isn't because these men are wise because they were astrologers. No, that's not it at all. It's because they found Christ. He is the source and author of all wisdom. And so they're wise, but they discover the one who is the wise one. That's part of the function of the story. And the details matter. They're to direct us to that very point, right? Jesus is the greater and better Moses. He is the greater lawgiver. He is the one who is the author of all wisdom. And so wise people, both men and women, continue to seek him as the author of wisdom in their lives. And so this is a part of the function of the story that we are to bring in. Do we have a Christ compass? Are we able to recalibrate our lives to his wisdom as we journey through life and discover him in every single facet and corner? Two scriptures I want to highlight here. The first is Matthew 7, 24, because wisdom is a central theme, and Jesus himself gives us the definition of wisdom. This is towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's the definition of wisdom. Do you hear the words of Jesus and then do you act on them? Not do you hear them and then let them go in one ear and out the other, or act pious but don't live differently. Do you hear the words of Jesus? Are you receptive to them? And then do you act on them? That's the person who's truly wise. Not necessarily the person who's you know, read the most articles or been to exotic places all over the world. That may be the case, but only insofar as we hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. He is the author of all wisdom. Secondly, as it is stated by Paul in Colossians 2.3, Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not some of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so therefore, in light of those things, no area of your life, there's no area in your life in which the wisdom of Christ doesn't help or bless you. And this is a sign of God's love for us. There is no area, corner, facet of your life where the wisdom of Christ does not bless and help you. Now let's look at this graphic. So above those two scriptures... There's an image of Jesus in the middle, and there's words, priorities, relationships, morality, politics, work, home, change, friends, family, dreams, sexuality, time, decisions. 
And so we need to be thinking about ourselves, are we willing to make mid-course corrections? Because at first sometimes we think, oh, a few degrees doesn't matter. But over time it becomes a divergent path is the, if the decisions and priorities and actions we're taking are not consistent with the wisdom of Jesus, who is the new and greater Moses. So priorities, okay. Are my priorities set to that Christ compass, to the wisdom of Jesus, or is it off just a few degrees? And at first it seems okay, but in the end it's a divergent path and we're way off course. What about relationships? What about morality or how we approach politics? Are we, are we tuned into that Christ compass about what we think and how we act to the wisdom of Jesus? Are we off just a few degrees? And because it's just a few degrees at first, it's like, oh, that's not really a big deal. I've kind of got the gist, but in the end, it's a divergent path. What about work or the cult culture we're creating at home or how we do with change? Are we dialed into this compass of Christ? Are we willing to make mid-course corrections to tap into his wisdom are we headed down a divergent path? What about how we approach change or how we make friends or family, how we cultivate that in our lives? Is it set to the compass of Christ or is there some divergent path which is sneaking in? What about dreams that we have for the future? Is that just in a separate little category that we think that Jesus doesn't have wisdom to help us shape our future? What about our approach to sexuality, who we are, how we act, how we understand our identity and our bodies? Are we, are we tuned into the compass of Christ and to his wisdom or are we just off a couple degrees and all of a sudden we head down this divergent path which ends up in a very different place? What about our decisions and how we're doing that and how we're using our time? Well, things seem okay, but really they're not totally consistent with Jesus. But, but, but next thing you know, we're in Russian airspace. And this is an amazing gift and sign of God's love for us. And we need to see that. We need to receive this. God cares about us so much as his children that he gives us all, the, not some, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. I've got kids. You've got kids. You've got people you love. There's nothing I wouldn't do for my kids. Their wisdom, their knowledge, giving it to them. If something's going to help them, I would jump in front of a, a moving train for them. I know many of you would do the same thing. That's how God feels about us. If there's something that's going to bless us and benefit wisdom and knowledge for the living of these days, what does Jesus say he comes to do in John 10, 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God wants to give us this wisdom that we might do this. And he says, here you go. I love you. All the treasures of knowledge and wisdom in Christ, I'm going to give it to you because I love you. And there it is. So in 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007, if there's something we could learn from that, it might be. If something is off just a little, we can end up way off course. And as I say this, I just want to acknowledge that as I put that, all those words up there and um, going through that, there's an old saying that preachers preach to themselves first. Every sermon I share with you, every blog, every devotional, I'm saying it to myself first. And so I put those words up there, not because I've got it all together, because friends, I do not. And as I was going through that list, maybe Ben put it back one for a second. As you go through that list, I thought, okay, there's some of those that, that make sense. Some, some of those I think I'm doing pretty well on, and there's other things I need to work on. And I think we just need to be honest about that. The whole point of this is mid-course correction. How do we ensure that we get to our destination and not disaster? It's our ability, our willingness to make mid-course corrections to the compass of Christ and to his wisdom. And we identify these things. Okay, in that decision I'm about to make, in that relationship I'm fostering, in, in that plan for the future that, that I'm engaging in, 
Is this in tune to the wisdom of Christ? If not, I need to make some mid-course correction. And so it's a work in progress for all of us. As Christopher Yuan's mother told him, a millimeter discrepancy leads to a thousand mile loss. And so may we, like the wise men of old, pursue Jesus our King, rejoice with an exceedingly great joy, worship Him, give Him the best of what we have, and find in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen.